pastoring a church that locked you out? What if you were a new member drawn to Christ through the teaching of Charles Simeon? Would you want to be part of a church that locked you out? Would you give up on your faith? Just being so discouraged by the behavior of people in that church that you just kind of forget the whole thing. What went on in Charles Simeon's life to lead him to endure? Well, you can read his biography, but I think his perspective is captured in this a short section of a letter he wrote to a friend who was dealing with adversity. And we have this to project. He said, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. Let us rejoice in remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all His suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow Him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of His victory. What a great attitude. What a wonderful truth. Charles Simeon was buoyed on and and propelled forward to be faithful when he was shut out of his very ministry. We're going to look at the life of a church uh, in Asia Minor in the first century that was also similarly faithful. A faithful little church that was shut out of the common benefits and comforts of their city and synagogue because of their faith, but nevertheless endured through suffering. Guys, Charles Simeon needs to know the truths that propelled him forward. This church in Philadelphia needed to hear truths that would propel them forward. And we, King of Grace Church, also need to hear these truths in this section of Scripture so that we would endure and be faithful as well. So let's pray. Let's pray together before we start, before we read, that God would instruct us and empower us to be like Charles Simeon, to be like this wonderful church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the power of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for how Your Word helps us in real ways. And I pray now as we go through this section of Scripture, would You help us? Would You speak to us? Would Your Word have an effect in our minds and our hearts and our our lives and our behavior as we encounter what You have to say? May we be empowered and transformed and may You use us, O God, to show Your glory to, to this world that so needs to know You. So help me, Lord, as I teach. Help us to have ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 3, verses 7-13. through We'll project this, but you know the best thing is to have the Bible in front of you uh, because I'm going to be going through this section of Scripture and I'm going to be kind of looking at different verses and we can't kind of keep projecting everything, so it's best just to have it in front of you and not to scold you if you don't have a Bible with you, but, um, but maybe next time have one. We also have Bibles on the shelves out there. If you need to get up and get one, go ahead and do that. So it's best just to have it right in front of you. But let's start in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, 
I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's Word from Revelation 3, 7-13. The lesson from this church in Philadelphia is that although we might be shut out of many things because of our faith, although we might be shut out of many things because of our faith, we have a key in the Gospel, the good news, that opens the most important doors. Although we might be shut out of many things because of our faith, we have a key in the Gospel that opens the most important doors. So what I'm going to talk about this morning is Closed doors, open doors, and in the middle I'm going to talk about this key. Kind of to use that metaphor that we see in, in this passage. So first, just talk about, let's talk about the closed doors. We see a lot in this section, don't we? That speaks about doors. Doors that are shut, doors that are open. We see a, a key. Uh, so the key that it would open a door, mention of a key. We see buildings, right? We see a synagogue building. And we see a temple building. So there's this theme of, of buildings and places being inside and being outside. That's kind of the, the, a theme in here, a key theme. Being inside and outside and how you get inside, what happened to you to get you outside, the use of a key. So there, there's this idea of, of doorways and places. And it's a metaphor for their situation. The background for this church in Philadelphia is very similar to the background for the other churches. The, the other six churches in Asia Minor uh, these are representative churches of the region and, and really of all the church and really for all the church of all time. We have lessons to learn from these seven churches. Their situation is that they were facing persecution. They were facing persecution where they were. There was pressure uh, on them and persecution coming from two sources really. First, the emperor worshiping Roman culture. The emperor worshiping Roman culture. And the Jesus rejecting culture of the synagogues. So the emperor-worshipping culture of Rome, the Jesus-rejecting rejecting culture of the synagogues. That's where the pressure is coming from for them. And the result of the pressure is not just you know, being scorned. That was, certainly was going on. Not just ridicule. But, but there was real economic results. As a result of not being connected to these key groups, there were lost jobs. There were lost friends. Lost family members. Ridicule. Poverty hatred, injustice, and even torture and death from these groups. The, the Roman culture and the, the culture around the synagogue. The Jewish culture around the synagogue. So that's, that's their context. That's what they're facing. To live in, uh, as a Christian in the first century was to live under those pressures. To have doors closed. To be kicked out of those places and out of those relationships. Literally, to be kicked out of the synagogue for many of the Jewish believers and God-fearing believers 
who had come to Christ, they were kicked out of the synagogues. They were told, you're not Jewish, even though they were ethnically Jewish. Or you're not welcome here if they were a God-fearer who was used to worshiping in the synagogue. You're not the people of God. Get out and don't come back. They were put out of the synagogue. Their names were scratched off the, the membership list and put out. And that wasn't just like how it might be today. Like if, you know, if you, I don't know, some reason you got kicked out of the YMCA or something because you did something you, I don't know, let the weight slam too much or something like that. I don't know how you would get kicked out of the YMCA. But, you know, you can't come anymore. Like that's, that's hard. But you just go to another place to work out, right? It isn't a big deal. For them, getting kicked out of the synagogue cut them off from all their key relational ties and all the benefits that came from that economically, relationally as well. And of course, they were cut off from the Roman culture as well. It included all these trade guilds and these, these uh, things that would go on around the temple. All their life was, all the life of their culture was either built around the synagogue or built around the Roman temple culture. And they were kicked out of those places and left on their own. Closed doors. Feeling unwanted, unwelcome. Society didn't care about them. And, and worse than that, they at times hated them and would kill them. So they're, they're living in that reality. Following Jesus has a cost. And there are closed doors for all of us. To some degree, one degree or another, we all face closed doors for our faith. There are circles and groups that we are put out of. For them, it was tangible and real and a matter of life and death physically in many ways. We all face this. And, and for us, uh, it's serious. But for much of the Christian world, it's very serious. Last year at this time, I, I was getting ready to travel to Nepal. And I spent time in Nepal. Met lots of believers there. Nepal is a predominantly Hindu nation. There's also a degree of Buddhism and Islam there as well. Um, and it's growing in its Christian population. But the culture still is solidly Hindu. And to come to Christ is to pay a very high cost. Everything's built around the Hindu religion and the Hindu way of life. Their, their holidays, their festivals, your family life is built around the Hindu culture. And, and many of them, pretty much all of them pay a high cost, some higher than the others. I met a young man who was studying to be a pastor, going to Bible college. He's probably about 20 years old. This young man who goes by the name of Christian. In Nepal, uh, when they come to Christ, they'll take on a, a new name, a Christian name. and So it isn't his given name, but he, the name he goes by, Christian. And he was just full of joy about the Lord. I met him in the first church I got to speak in. And, and he was just full of joy. And, in, in, and just looking forward to how he could serve the Lord, looking forward to what the Lord would do. Uh, you didn't see in his life any, any discouragement or regret. But I heard Christian's story. You see, I was in Kathmandu, and Kathmandu wasn't Christian's hometown. He lived and grew up uh, towards the east in another town. And through a series of events, like many other Nepali brothers and sisters, I believe it had to do with a family member being healed in Christ's name, and then a Christian came to faith and trusted Christ. Through those things, he came to Christ, and then his family put up an ultimatum and said, you got a choice, Christian. It's either Jesus or us. And if you don't, matter of fact, if you don't renounce, there's more than that, if you don't renounce Jesus, we're going to kill you. His own brothers and sisters, his own mother and father, his own relatives, basically told him we're going to kill you if you don't come back to Hinduism. So he had to flee his own family. 
flee his hometown and lose it all and leave it all behind. In a real way, Christian experienced a closed door because of his faith. And yet, in his life, there's not regret. Because even though he gave up much, he knows what he has now. And that fills him and gives him joy. How about you? Probably none of us face quite the level of what Christian faces right now. But what closed doors have you faced? Do you find yourself on the outside looking in at times? Do you find yourself on the outside looking in maybe with certain family members or co-workers? Neighbors, despite your best efforts to truly love them, that you just find yourself on the outside looking in? Do you find yourself, are you sometimes a little bit jealous? Thinking, you know, I just wish, I don't know, just wish I didn't have to deal with this rejection. I just, just wish that I didn't have to worry about the kingdom. I could, I could be like my friends. I could have a different job. I could, I don't know, just be connected and have fun and not have to worry about being part of the church and giving my life there. Have you ever thought those things? Have you ever looked at what's on the inside that you're put out from and think, oh, why can't I have that? Why do I have to do this? Have you ever found yourself there? On the outside looking in? Aware that you're on the outside or or wishing to get in? Guys, we deal with this and we're going to deal with it more. Our culture is shifting even more so. Um, I was actually shocked to look recently on a map uh, that an organization has created of of hate groups. It's a map of the United States and hate groups are listed. And certainly we should be concerned about legitimate hate groups, groups that are are bent on destroying one aspect of our culture or certain people groups. That's, That's legitimate. But because of the shifting culture and the shifting values, there are now groups on that map that are Christian groups, that are essentially for Christian ethics. And because they're for Christian ethics, which goes against the the sexual ethics of our culture, they are being labeled as hate groups. Christian groups being called hate groups on a map. That's just indicative of what's going on in our culture. So guys, we're going to find ourselves on the outside looking in in more and more ways if our culture continues in the direction it's going. So we need to just get used to that in some ways. (laughs) I think just face the fact that to be a believer is to be on the outside at times because of your faith. Now the passage here is going to give us help. But we won't really value its help if we don't recognize this reality that we are often on the outside looking in. We're shut out of key relationships and key contexts. And to be a believer includes that reality to one degree or another. But there's hope and there's truth here. So the passage talks about the closed doors. And then it goes on and it talks about a key. You see that in the passage? It talks about the key of David. That Jesus holds this key of David. Um, and certainly that makes sense with the metaphor, right? There's this whole running metaphor of doors and keys and outside and inside. So it fits nicely. But it actually, in the genius of God, is a, is a truth in Scripture that is earlier on in the book of Isaiah. It looks like it's from Isaiah 22. I think we have the verse to project. And it says there in Isaiah 22, it says uh, Isaiah is speaking to the people of God. They are wandering from God. God's calling them back to Himself. And in the context 
of all that, he says in verse 20, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Wow, remarkable. It's almost exact wording as our passage in Revelation. And it speaks of this guy, Eliakim, who has a key. He has the key of the house of David. He will open and none will shut. He will shut and none will open. This guy is a steward of the king. And he's a faithful steward who's serving after an unfaithful steward. And he's representing the king. He has the key of the king. He's, as a steward, he can determine what goes on in the city and in the kingdom. And he can open a door and have things happen, or he can close a door. He has authority. Probably uh, related to this is authority to let people in and out of the temple as well. So this guy has a key that opens key doors. It's a key with authority. Elsewhere we see in Scripture the, the same idea, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to Peter, parallel passage in Matthew 18 where he's speaking to the whole church, so they go together. Peter is a leader and the whole church as well operates together in the same thing. It says this in verse 19 of Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The same idea. I'm giving you, Peter, the key. And I'm giving the church the key to the kingdom. And when you guys open it up and let someone in, they're in. And when you shut, it's shut. The same idea that that's, we're seeing in Revelation 3, we see in Matthew and Isaiah 22. So what is the key exactly? I mean, yeah, obviously it opens things, but what, what is it? Well, if we dig into our passage and look, I think we can get a sense for what the metaphor represents. Again, if we think in terms of closed doors and open doors, and the key, we'll see if we take that metaphor and apply it to the whole section, we'll see that there's, there's these open doors, and we'll get there shortly, and there are closed doors. If we look throughout the passage, uh, verse 8. and verse 8 in the passage, it says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I, and, uh, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, so Jesus is saying to this church, I, I have an open door for you, and it's related to you keeping my word. Not denying me, but keeping my word. So you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Later on in, in verse 10, something similar. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So there's a promise of being kept from this hour of trial. I would, I would submit that that's an open door. Another one, if you want to use the metaphor throughout, it's an open door. And they are kept, they receive that promise because they have a, a key, which is what in verse 10? Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Do you see what's going on? Do you see the metaphor here? Verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. That's the key. So that no one may seize your crown. That's the open door. So given what we see as we look at this and use that metaphor throughout, what do we think the key is? Well, the key is the Word of God. The key is at the core of the Word, the truth about Jesus. The core truth about Jesus is what we call the good news. In Old English, it's called the Gospel. 
Gospel means good news. It's the good news about Christ. That, that is the key here in this passage. And, and with that good news about Christ, there's the central good news about Christ. The central good news about Christ can be stated very simply. Christ died for our sins. Very simply. Five words in English. Five simple words. Christ died for our sins. That's the central truth. With that truth that Christ died for our sins, there's other truths that come. There are blessings. There are promises. There are implications in terms of what our life is because of what Christ has done when we put our faith in Him. We're joined to Him. What we get because He died for our sins. That, that comes with the Gospel. That's, that's the implication of the Gospel. But it's all driven by the Gospel. And then, then from that also flows a new lifestyle. When we are connected with Christ who died for our sins through faith, there's a new life. So there's behavior that flows. So we as a church call ourselves Gospel-centered. This is what we mean by that. We center on that core truth and we see that everything else, all the promises... All the behaviors flow out of that central truth. That's what gospel-centered means. And we just use that phrase to describe what Scripture really teaches us. So this key that they have is, is at the core the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Now, those five simple words describe that, but, but of course there's some understanding behind first who is Christ. Christ means anointed one or the King. He's the chosen one, the promised one. He's God in the flesh. He's God's designated Savior who came to save us. To rule and to reign as well. So He's the Christ. He's the Anointed One. The Messiah. He's the Savior. He's God in the flesh. So that's when we say Christ, that's what we mean. He died. Literally, He died. He died on the cross for our sins. He gave up His righteous life. His perfect life on our behalf. He, he died. He bore in His body on the tree our sins. And of course, our sins, what are sins? Well, sins are lawlessness. It's rebellion against God. It's turning away from God and His goodness. It's failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Failing to obey His Word. Failing to love others as ourselves. That's sin. We're created to love God. We're created to do that faithfully. And falling short of, of that is sin. Falling short of the glory and all the goodness that He has for us and, and all the glory He wants to show and share through that, we fall short of that when we rebel and the wages of sin is death. It's to be put away from God. Sent away. Exiled and punished. And of course, if we continue in that lifestyle, if we choose sin over Jesus, we will live forever separated from Him in the worst imaginable eternity we could ever have. And so Christ died for our sins. God in His great love sent His Son. Christ died for our sins. That's the good news. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty so you don't have to. It's good news. It's amazing good news. I was talking in, in our, I think it was our men's breakfast the other day. If someone came up to you and said, hey look, here's, a, uh, here's my Powerball ticket. You know, the, the billion dollar one or whatever it was that was just won. Here it is. You can have it. I, you, you can take it. It's yours. Would you take it? I hope so. The good news is better than the Powerball. It's forgiveness of all of your sins and being reconciled to God. So, so when you react and respond to that good news through faith, you say, I believe this. Not only do I believe that, that you have the Powerball ticket in front of you, but I receive that ticket. That's what faith is. It's believing that your friend really has a real Powerball ticket and it's receiving it. It's taking the ticket. When you hear the Gospel, that's first off, you need to believe it's true. And I trust that you do. But you need to receive it. You know, I grew up in a, a religious context that was wonderful in so many ways. 
But there was, and, we, and they described Christ dying for our sins. I, if you had asked me during that time, you know, why did Christ come? I would have said, He came to die for our sins. I didn't quite get what it meant, and I didn't get, and no one told me, you need to take it. You need to believe it and receive it and say, it's for me. If you're here today and you've never taken the ticket, take it through faith. It's very simple. All you need to do in taking it is saying, I don't want the other stuff. I don't want my own way of life anymore. I don't want sin. I don't want sin's consequences. I don't want to do life apart from God anymore. I want to receive this. I want to take the ticket. We receive all these things, Galatians says, by hearing with faith. That's it. It's simple. Now there are implications. There are, there's a new lifestyle we're called to in that. And, and with that, of, of course, uh, we are to be baptized. So if you are a believer and haven't been baptized yet, talk to me. We're planning a baptism in January. We'd love to baptize you. That's part of your response to the Gospel. But you don't get saved through baptism. You get saved by hearing with faith. You take the ticket. You believe it's true. And you say, I want it for my own life. It's that simple. So if you haven't done it, take it today. Just tell Jesus, I receive what you've done for me. Forgive me. Lead me in this new life. It's that simple. And, and tell someone else about it. I'd love to hear that if, if today that you responded in that way. That's the key they have. That good news. And when we respond in faith, all these things are ours in Christ. We are united with Him. We are forgiven for all of our sins. We are at peace with God. Do you feel anxious? Are you, are you unsure what tomorrow holds? You can have peace with God. You can have a peace that's bigger than anything else. Knowing that you're forgiven and you're counted as His son or daughter. You're given the Holy Spirit. You're made a new creation. And that new creation will have its full way. Eventually, you will be totally transformed and made like Jesus. And you will live with Him forever in His new creation. You are adopted as a son and a daughter through Him. You're given a life that's eternal. The day you believe you're given eternal life. There's no more damnation. There's no more punishment. There's forgiveness. There's life with Jesus. There's real life. It starts the day you receive it. You're joined in union with God Himself. And now He promises to take everything that goes on in your life, every single thing, and ultimately use it for good. Even the very worst things this world might throw at us. Even our own mistakes and sins and failures. Even tragedies. Even weaknesses. All those things in His hands now as you've trusted in Christ and belong to Him, He uses to work good ultimately for you. He will take those things that, that you feel like would destroy your life and He will transform them in His wisdom and His power to work good in your life and make you like Christ. That's what comes when you believe and receive this, this good news. He gives you gifts. He empowers you. He uses your gifts now to serve others. He teaches you how to now in His power and His great love for you to turn around and love others. To love those closest to you. To love those in your church. To love those in your neighborhood. And to use your gifts to help others. And there's wonderful purpose in that. He protects you. He comforts you. He speaks to us. He transforms us. And we will be conformed to the image of Christ. You brother or sister, because of the wonder of the Gospel received simply through faith, one day will be like Christ in His presence in glory forever. And you will be amazed at what He has done in and through your life. 
That's all yours in the Gospel. That's the key. That's what's going on. This church in Philadelphia has understood at least enough of this. Enough of, the, of what comes with this key. Enough of its truth that they have chosen to hold on to that key and not exchange it for popularity or comfort. Not exchange that key to, to get back in those places that they've been shut out of. Because they know there's another door that this opens. That this key that they have in Jesus opens the most important doors. It says here that they've kept the, the key of Christ's endurance. The word of His endurance, it calls it. It's wonderful, wonderful study just in and of itself how, how they've kept that word. They've been faithful. This word of endurance, it, it, it appears that, that it's basically applying the Gospel, the truth of the Gospel, to suffering. The word of endurance about Christ, it looks like what they're doing is they're remembering. They're remembering the good news. And they're remembering what Christ has done. And they're remembering that their Savior, God Himself, God in the flesh, was subjected to suffering. And yet He looked forward to the reward that would come as He was faithful. He set His eyes on the, on the end goal and He endured the suffering for the joy that was set before Him. And He overcame. And that Word had an impact on this church and they were realizing, you know what? We hate being shut out of these things. We, it, it, it breaks our hearts that our family doesn't want us around anymore. It breaks our hearts that we can't be part of the life of the synagogue or, or the life of, of the Roman culture with our friends. But there's something that makes it all worth it. And so we're going to hang in there as, as those that we used to be in with now we're out and we're persecuted. We're going to endure. So, so they were, the word of endurance was taking the truth of the Gospel that Christ endured so that they could be rescued from sin and have an eternal life and that word, that truth, that example of Christ was applied to their life, and so they were hanging on to the key, strengthened by the truth of Christ's endurance. And this is a wonderful church. It's a small church. It's one of the only of the two churches that are actually praised without being critiqued. They hung on. They they treasured that key. And guys, we need to be a church that treasures the Gospel. That, that keeps the Gospel central. That, that doesn't just have it as a slogan. The good news of Christ for all of life, we, we say. Just, but we, we mustn't just say it as a slogan. It must be our life. It must be our strength. It must be our joy. It must be the key that we hold on to and treasure. The key that we recognize opens doors. It's easy to lose our way. It's easy to forget. And to not endure. It's our jobs as pastors to make sure the best we can that you endure, that you hold on to the key. Now, if you are a genuine believer, I know for sure you will endure. There are promises in Scripture all over the place. No one snatches God's people out of the hand of the Savior, out of the hand of the Father. But in Scripture, ultimately, we only know if someone is a genuine believer if they endure. And so, our job is on the human side to do all we can to make sure that you endure. And that is really the core of pastoral ministry, of, of, of leadership in the church. To so teach the Word, to so care for people, to so equip the saints so that you guys... 
your families, your children will be there on that final day. That's, that's our reward. Paul talks about that's our reward. That's our glory. And I so long for that. And I know that your other pastors as well long for that. But we all have a responsibility with this as well. We're, it's not just up to the guys, the, the, the pastors. It's up to all of us, isn't it? We are the body. Interconnected. And so we must labor together to hold on to this key, to hold fast, to build our lives on this word of endurance, to remember the Gospel and remind each other of the Gospel. I read a little while ago about the story of uh, John Adams' church. I don't know, I'm sure you, most of you know who John Adams is, the pres- one of the presidents, early presidents, second president of the United States. Grew up in uh, what is now Quincy, but was Braintree. And grew up in a church that preached the gospel, that kept the key. Uh, at least when he was really young. But what happened is uh, a new pastor came in town. And he came, and when he started, the church brought him on. He was faithful. He was preaching the Gospel. But over time, he started to drift away from the Gospel. And it was very subtle. Just very subtle at first. Just little little things that went on. And he got further and further and got to the place where he basically was denying the divinity of Christ. He became a, a functional Unitarian. And so, the pastors in the area, they had a, a ministerial association they basically had a, a, a heresy trial because like, this guy should not be pastoring. He's lost the Gospel. And they tried him and they found that he was guilty, that he shouldn't be pastoring anymore. Doesn't mean you, you know, can't be connected to the church in some way. Doesn't mean people stop loving him, but you can't be a leader. And if you deny it, you, can't, you really can't claim yourself as a Christian. And they got, uh, from what I remember reading, they got near the end of the proceedings and the pastor appealed to them and said, look, you know, basically you guys don't have authority the way that they did Paulie at the time. They had no authority to, to take him out of that church. He said, so why don't we go to my congregation and see what they say? Now, he had been there for a number of years. Can you guess what happened? The congregation said, no, you're our pastor. We love you. We trust you. We're not going to kick you out. And so he led that church. The church didn't do what it was called to do. right? The, right, the church should have said, you've lost the Gospel. We love you dearly, but you can't pastor us. But they didn't. They followed him. And the whole church left the faith. And then gave that church to John Adams' generation without the Gospel. And this man, as great as he was, did not know Jesus as Savior. Because that church failed to hold on to the key. Guys, let's make sure by God's grace, as far as what we can do, empowered by Him, we pass on this church as a Gospel-centered church that treasures and lives around this key. Now how do we do that practically? That's a great question to ask and try to answer. Um, there are lots of ways. You're, you're doing it right here, right now. Being here on Sunday. Being here on Sunday to hear the Word proclaimed. To worship around the truths of the Word. To encourage each other. To, to share communion. This, this visible Word of God that shows us the truth of the Gospel. So being here on Sundays is such an important part. Being part of a small group. Guys, I, I want you to be here on Sundays. And, and just to point out, there's a trend going on. Actually, there's a trend going on in our country, in churches. A trend of lower attendance. And not that attendance matters by itself. It doesn't. And I don't care about numbers by themselves. But there's a trend of lower and lower attendance among people that, that would 
say that they're dedicated to the church among, among core people who are like, I'm on fire for Jesus. Attendance is going down and down and down. And we're seeing it too. We have right now, actually, we'll talk about this in the family meeting afterwards, we have more people in our church or connected with our church than we've ever had. We try to keep track of folks, so counting members, regular attenders, and visitors, kind of visitors one time, two times, and just average brand new visitors. It's over 200 people. I think it's 210 people possible. And we have, uh, back when we had even less people peeking out, we had an average attendance of about 150 on a Sunday or so. Our attendance now is slightly over 100. We're 210 people. Now, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I mean, if you feel guilty, that might be helpful, but that's not my point. I don't say it because we need to get our numbers up. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this for numbers or attendance. And I know it's the same for the other guys. We're not doing this. We're, we're not looking into building our empire. On the final day, I won't be giving answers for how many people attended on Sunday but I'll give answers for your souls. And are you there or not? That's on us to a degree, and it's on all of us. And the reality is, guys, if you don't attend, if you don't connect, you might wander. And you might do what John Adams' church did. Step by step. A step away. A step away. And pretty soon, you're, you're out of the faith. And it happens that way. And it's connected to attendance. So attendance doesn't matter primarily, but it, the effect it produces when you're relating and you're here to hear the Word and you're serving, it produces fruit and you endure. So do not presume on your ability to endure apart from the means of grace that God has given in His church. Treasure that key. And together, let us come together to treasure that and live Gospel-centered lives and walk out it practically in something as simple as attendance. So, if you've let that slip, let me just suggest to you that you think about it in terms of the things we're talking about. It may be a small step, but it's a step in the wrong direction. And so maybe there's just one less family event to go to. Hey, I want you to go to family events. I don't want you here every Sunday. If you're here every single Sunday throughout the year, I'm going to ask probably, or one of us will ask, like, are you connected to the people outside the church? <laughs> are you getting with your family? I mean, you sh there's times when that's important. So... But maybe it isn't half the Sundays. Actually, if you, uh, if you think over 200 people and the average attendance is just over 100, that means that our average attendance rate is 50%. So maybe for you it's just one more time that I'm going to say, well, that isn't as important. I want to be with God's people. And maybe also it's, um, I'm going to plug in and find a way to serve. We, we still have lots of need for teams and serving on our Sundays. But just think about that in terms of keeping the Gospel. That's my point. A way to apply it finally and quickly. <laughs> Open doors. I'm going to have to move quickly. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, trust that God is leading us in the right pace for, for this message. But the third part, open doors. This key that they have opens door. They've been put out of the synagogue. They've been ostracized by their neighbors. They actually they live in a city that was known for earthquakes. This is another kind of interesting side fact. To live in Philadelphia was a very fertile area, a fairly prosperous area, but they had earthquakes all the time. Ancient uh, authorities who have written about Philadelphia say that all the buildings had cracks throughout from all the earthquakes. So they were familiar with living in a city that at any moment could, could shake under an earthquake. And so they, they kind of knew, like, wow, when that happens, you've got to get out of the house and out of the city. That's some of the background here as they're 
given this promise that because you have this key, you're going to be inside somewhere, not on the outside. You're not going to be shut out of the synagogue. You're going to be included in God's people. And so they're given these promises here. One is that they will be a pillar in the temple of God itself. So you, you are going to no longer identify yourself as those shut outside, but as those who are inside. You're in the temple. You're a pillar in the temple. So you're not just in the temple, in the place where God is, but you're actually a pillar. You're this glorious, enduring part of the temple. The pillars were big deals in the temple. So you're, you're going to be a pillar. Uh, maybe a, a modern analogy would be, you're going to be a face on Mount Rushmore. You are going to be a face on Mount Rushmore as you hold on to this key. That's the promise. You're going to be a pillar in the temple. You will be solid and safe and secure. No more running out because of earthquakes. No, be, no more being put out of the synagogue. A safe, secure place where you will dwell and you will be glorious in the Lord in that place. They are told that they will be given a new name. Their, their city actually had been named multiple times. Philadelphia, then Neo-Caesarea, then Flavia. They were named all these different things. And Jesus says you're going to be given a new name. You're going to be called the city of God. You're going to be given a new citizenship. They were really in danger of losing their citizenship in, their, in Philadelphia. They were, they were given a citizenship in Jesus, a new name. And not only just a, a new name of the city, but the name of Christ Himself. I'm going to share my name with you. You're going to have the royal name. Imagine being so included and adopted into the British royal family that you, you, you are of the house of Windsor, whatever they're called, right? That's your name. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to have my royal name. You're going to have my name. There's other open doors, so to speak, that, that they have through this key. Verse 9 says something very profound. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So the background here would be particularly for the, the Jewish Christians, but really all of them, they're being told you're, you're not real Jews. And this synagogue who had denied the Messiah was doing that and putting them out. And the promise here, the open door for them, is that these people who have put you out, who aren't true Jews, there's only one true Jew, by the way, and his name is Jesus. So Jewish or Gentile, our faith is in the one true Jew, the one true man, Jesus. And in Him, we are true Jews, true believers, true followers. And, and the promise is that these people who have put you out, they're going to come and bow down at your feet and say and see that I've loved you. So these ones who have spurned you will come and bow down to you. Now, there are two ways, I think, to understand that. First, we know in Philippians 2, 10-11, teaches us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Right? We know that. So one way to understand it is that at the end of all things, every person who's ever lived will see that Jesus is indeed who He says He is and they will bow and they will confess. Now some, having put their faith in Jesus in life, will find that joyous and wonderful and glorious. Those who have rejected Jesus will, will, will still say that. They still will acknowledge who Jesus is, but there will be regrets and sorrow and so forth. So one way this is fulfilled certainly is at the end. But I believe it's also fulfilled in a more immediate way because bowing of the knee represents... In, in some contexts, the bowing of the heart. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about the, the proper 
uh, operation of prophetic ministry, which I trust you experienced this morning. When, when it works, when we speak faithfully uh, under God's Word, those who don't yet know Christ are touched. And it, He says in 1 Corinthians 14, they come and they fall on their face. And they say, surely God is with you. And the picture is that they're not just saying, wow, really cool that you, re- you, know, you knew what was going on in my life. No, they, their hearts are converted. They're changed. And now they bow as fellow worshipers. And Isaiah, actually, which is probably the, the immediate reference, Isaiah 60, it talks about that, if we could project this. It says, uh, this is the promise to, to those who were rejected. He says, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Almost the exact idea as we see in Revelation. So the ones who have rejected you, and put you out, they're going to come and they're going to bow down with you. They're going to be even part of that city. So the second implication is that, that these people are, are um, going to see the, the very persecutors come to know Christ. That's another one of the open doors. Finally, there's an open door here uh, through the key that Jesus will keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Now, that hour of trial can be understood as something coming more immediate in their lives. In that case, it, a trial under Roman persecution. Some would say that the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the tumult around there was the hour of trial. There's an hour of trial coming, and Jesus is going to keep them from it. It could also be understood, and I think Revelation has both an immediate and long-term application. The immediate, the trials that they face in their days. Long-term, the trials that come at the final time. Certainly the trials in between. Just to live as a Christian is to live always in these things. But there'll be these... Uh, climax points where these are brought to fullness. And so, for them, they're going to be kept from that. Now, some think that this speaks of the rapture of the church at the end. Um, and and uh, I just think it's hard from Scripture to support uh, the classic understanding of the rapture that somehow all the believers are going to be taken up into the air and disappear for a while with, with Jesus, this invisible return, and then there'll be another return later. I just think it's hard to support from Scripture. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and elsewhere. There's one return of Christ, and our, the rapture, as it's called, is going up to meet Him on His way down. Like you would when a, a guest comes to your house, you step out your front door to welcome them, and then you bring them in the house. That's what's going on in 1 Thessalonians 5. We go to meet Him in the air, indeed, and then we come down, and He comes for His final judgment and the new creation. So I don't think that, that it happens that way. And the use of this word keeping from is used one place else in Scripture, John 17, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from, keep from, same phrase, the evil one. What's Jesus praying there? Not that you take them out of the world, but while they go through the tribulations, you keep them. Keep them close. So another open door through the key is that Jesus keeps us from trials in the sense of He keeps us from losing our faith in trials. He strengthens us. He meets us. If the band could come up as we close. The Voice of the Martyrs tells the story of a young man named Sutta. A young man, maybe 20 years old, had come to faith in Christ. And he went to a neighboring village because he knew, he felt God calling him to go there and tell them about Jesus. He went to a neighboring village, and that village was full of devout Hindus. 
And the village leaders told him to stop talking about Jesus and to leave. They threatened his life. They drove him out of the village. So Sutta left the village, but then he just felt compelled to go back. He went back to that village and shared the Gospel. And a man named Raji and a bunch of men from the village surrounded Sutta. They beat him mercilessly, pretty much to death. They threw him in a pit to die. Later on that day, Raji felt a tinge of remorse and went to the ditch to see if Sutta was alive. He was still alive. And so Raji took Sutta back to his house and nursed him to help. In the process, Raji's wife, a friend, a relative of his wife, was sick. And somehow it was arranged that Suda would pray for this relative. And the relative was healed miraculously. And through that, and through the boldness of Sutta, Raji recognized that he was preaching about the true God. And Raji and his whole family put their faith in Christ. But not only Raji, but every single one of his persecutors came to Christ. And this day, Suda is their pastor in that village. Suda was faithful to keep and use the precious key he had in the Gospel. And as a result, despite paying a high cost, the village leaders who sought to kill him now bow down at the feet of Jesus with him. This man experienced the truth of our passage in a profound way. So in closing, let me ask you, who are those you need to keep loving and sharing Christ with? What is your neighboring village? Where is the place that you are being shut out of that the Lord would send you back into? In love, in humility, but back into. Is it at work? Is it with classmates? Is it in your neighborhood? Is it with your extended family or your, or your immediate family? What is your neighboring village? What is that place you are shut out of that God would want you to go back in, keeping that key and trusting Him to open a door? Let's just take a minute to pray and ask the Lord what is that place and then ask Him to give you power to go back into the village.